Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guests as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Hello, hello, and a warm welcome back to the Winsome Creationist Podcast. It has been a few weeks again since I've been with you. I want to say thank you for your patience. I have been pretty sick these past few weeks and unable to record. And um, anyway right into the content. I'm excited to talk to you about um, a framework that has helped me when I'm asked something like, who cares about the age of the earth? What's with the age of the earth? Why make a big deal about origins? Why make a big deal about creationism at all? Who cares? Um, I call it the Adam framework. Now, in my a previous podcast, my other show, um, called the Bible Nerd Podcast, which I still plan to update every once in a while, but I haven't released an episode uh, since starting The Winsome Creationist. Um, on that show, I did a, a multi-episode series on this topic, which today, um, what I plan to do is just give you a very high-level overview of my thinking around this idea, introduce you to the Adam framework, and uh, hopefully it's something that you will end up finding to be useful. And so... Broadly speaking, there are three creation views as it relates to the biblical data that are available. You've got young age creationism, you've got old age creationism, and then you've got what I call no age creationism, okay? Um, young age creationism is is the view, again, I'm speaking in very broad terms here because there's actually um, lots of subcategories within each of these. Broadly speaking, young age creationism is the view that the earth is somewhere between six to 10,000 years old. Old age creationism is the view that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old, which is the um, standard sort of conventional scientific mainstream chronology. And then no age is the view specifically that the Bible doesn't speak to the issue of the age of the earth. Okay, so um, if I were to, to kind of laser focus in on that just a little bit more, I would say young age creationism is specifically the view that the Bible teaches the earth is roughly six to 10,000 years old. Old age creationism is the view that uh, while the Bible doesn't directly teach this old age of the earth, it's the view that the Bible hints at the earth being much more ancient than that, and that there is still a measure of correlation that can be made between scientific events that have happened in real history and statements of the Bible. And that is a view often known as concordism, but most old age creationists who take that approach are going to be concordists. And then, right, so in that thinking, the no age view is simply the idea that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about the age of the earth. In fact, you can't use any of the data in the Bible chronologically to get you even to an age for the earth. And so those are the three sort of broad views within creationism. And so the question that, that people ask is, well, who cares? I mean, this isn't a salvation issue, surely. Like the gospel isn't necessarily affected by this view, right? Um, and that's something, you know, a completely different topic, honestly, that we could discuss. Um, is your view of salvation dependent upon your view of the age of the earth? In other words, can you be a follower of Jesus and 
you know, have differing views on this? Of course, the answer to that is 100% yes. There is a question, though, as to whether old age views or or even no age views that would allow for old age teaching, uh, whether those actually would undermine the gospel. And I believe that they do, and that's why one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to those views, right? So multiple ways of looking at it, but but why should we actually care? Right, what's the big deal about being a young age creationist? That's what we are here on this uh, channel and in this podcast. That's what we teach. That's what we think makes the most sense of the biblical data. But why specifically does this really matter? And so I think the main thrust of the issue can be captured within this Adam framework. Now, this is an acrostic, and so each um, letter in the word Adam is going to stand for a different piece of the overall puzzle that we're putting together here. So we're just going to briefly discuss those today. Again, if you are interested in going much more in-depth into each of these, um, then I'll just invite you to go check out the Bible Nerd podcast. Um, I believe the series starts with an episode that's actually called What's With the Age of the Earth, um, although I don't have that right in front of me, so I don't remember exactly, but it'll be pretty easy to find, and I'll, uh, I'll put a link to the first episode in that series um, in the description. So that you have it, okay? So the first thing is the A, which stands for the accuracy of the biblical account, okay? It matters to whether or not the Bible is accurate in the things that it's saying, um, depending on the view of creation that you take. So while the scholarship is swayed on this over the years, one thing that is like universally recognized at this point is that the church broadly speaking really did not entertain the idea of deep time until it was suggested by the work of modern science now again there are some examples that you can point to i know a lot of people have, have dove into the church fathers on this and what's interesting is you can watch uh, one person take a church father and, and argue uh, one view of, of creation and time and then you can take another church father or or even the you know one person take the same church father and argue their um, interpretation of it based on that. And one of the most helpful uh, discussions of this that I've seen is actually in uh, Dr. Todd Wood's book called The Quest, where uh, basically he introduces you to the idea that a lot of the uh, church fathers had actually multiple um, ways that they would interpret scripture. And depending on if you took one uh, interpretation path, you would arrive at one view. If you took another interpretation path, you would arrive at another view, and these were used at different times to make different points. Um, again, it's a worthwhile discussion to check out. It's the first time that it's ever made sense to me how you know a, a person from an old age um, creationist organization and, and then a, a person from a young age creationist organization you know, could uh, quote the same church father in support of their points um, at different times. So that, that really uh, made some sense to me, and I think it's worth checking out. Nevertheless, right, if we're looking at the uh, biblical data, we're saying, okay, what makes the most sense of what we're told in the Bible, then it's really, really hard to arrive at a view other than young age creationism. And I think this is part of the reason why the church and the Jewish communities have been young age creationists uh, for thousands upon thousands of years now, okay? Um now, what sort of data are we talking about? How would we arrive at that? Uh, the three that I wrote down are the literal understanding of the word uh, yam, which is the Hebrew word for day that we find in Genesis chapter one. And so if you take the text sort of at face value for what it says right there, you are going to arrive at the notion that God created the world 
in a period of six days. And there's uh, some other questions as to, well, was there time before then? You know, like how you take Genesis 1 and 2 are going to sort of help inform that. How scientifically you take Genesis is going to sort of inform that. But nevertheless, if you're just looking at the biblical data, you do see that it seems like six 24-hour periods of light and dark are what the author has in mind. Um, Exodus 20 and verse 11 hearkens back to this. God builds the framework of a week for, well, the work week, right, for basically for, for the Israelites uh, off of this concept. And um, there was a time, which especially when old age creationism was gaining some popularity, there were some Hebrew, Hebrew scholars who wanted to sort of back away from that tact and say, well, you know, the, there's different literal ways to understand the word day. And um, it, it could mean epochs of time. And, there, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. But honestly, the scholarship has swayed in the other direction uh, more recently with, uh, I, I would I would think it's fair to say that most um, Hebrew scholars who don't take a young age creationist view are going to take more of a no age creationist view and say that, yeah, the word day being used there and, and the evidence from Exodus 2011, if you put that data together, it, it does seem that the author had a work week in mind. But he didn't necessarily mean that literally, right? There are some um, maybe sort of allegorical way of of understanding that, or there's some evidence uh, that maybe Genesis was written in a sort of uh, poetic literary uh, style similar to Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors. And because of the structure of the document, there is a way to understand that that makes it where we wouldn't have to take those days literally. Now, again, the purpose of this podcast is not to dive into each of those thoughts. I'm just giving you like a super basic sketch here uh, of some of the conversations that we'd have going into that. So a literal understanding of, of the word yom uh, in Genesis 1 uh, does come into play here. The chronogenealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 also come into play here. So what we have is we have, as far as I know, the only two genealogies in ancient history at all, but especially in the Bible, where detailed chronological information is given about the length of time that a person uh, lived and specifically when their sons were born relative to the time that they uh, lived and then died. And this is important information uh, because it would allow us to construct a pretty tight chronology that you could only add so many generations to uh, in order for it to become believable. And so we think that that data gives some time constraints around how old the earth could actually be. And then another way to arrive at this is to work backwards uh, from the time of Christ. Um, if you, like uh, a colleague of mine named Mark Lambert has done some work on this, and I actually interviewed him uh, along these lines on my uh, Bible Nerd podcast as well that you can check out. And Basically, his thinking is that you could basically take Genesis chapter 1 out of the picture. Again, not diving into all of that today, just uh, letting you know there's some different ways that you can actually arrive at that, and I'll uh, provide some other resources for you to check out. So the first one is the accuracy of the biblical account. Can it really be that the Bible is right in these plain statements about six days and and the uh, you know age of the father when their kids were born? Like these are very specific and interesting details to uh, be totally meaningless. Um, and I, I think that they are there for a purpose. And so the accuracy of the biblical account is at stake. 
Okay, the second thing is death before the fall. This is the D, of course, in Adam. Death before the fall. My friend Stephen Lloyd likes to ask this question and uh, also interviewed him on the Bible Nerd podcast as well. He says, which came first, Adam or death? Because the way you answer that question has lots of theological implications. Um, which came first, Adam or death? Was, was Adam in the world before death was in the world, or was death in the world before Adam was in the world? Now remember, as a creationist, we're talking about death in the way that the Bible defines death, which is basically nephesh life, life in, in whom there is the breath of life. Um, insects probably don't count. Plants probably don't count. Lots of uh, articles and books have been written discussing these points. Um, if you are alive in the biblical sense, then you have nephesh life. And it is the death of that kind of life that is in question. If that sort of death preceded Adam, then there just are lots of questions about how this makes sense. Theologically, you know, does that mean, you know, can God be good and have allowed death before the fall of, of man? Can biblical statements, again, be true that talk about how Adam introduced death into the creation and then death spread to all men. Um, if death came first, then how come the Bible calls death the last enemy that is to be destroyed? Why would God uh, uh, place into creation um, and the you know the the enemy as part of His creative process? You know Romans eight uh, extends this to, to to beyond humans, right? The whole creation is groaning and suffering and pain, you know, awaiting its final redemption. Um, why did God create it in fundamental need of redemption? Why wouldn't he just created it in a state that was aiming to accomplish his good creative purposes? And, of course, we think Genesis teaches that he, he did do that. Uh, what higher purpose might God have actually had if he did uh, create and, and allow death and suffering to persist for billions of years before humans entered into the scene? What sort of purpose could he have really had for that? That's not really clear. That sort of purpose is not uh uh, given to us in the Bible. And so theologically, it doesn't make sense. Biblically, it doesn't make sense. So we need to answer that question. So so that's the D. That's the why. Um, death before the fall. If death was in the creation before the fall, then it just doesn't really make sense, a lot of what we find in the Bible. Okay, number three, another A. And this is for a truly risen Savior. Okay, for a truly risen Savior. Another way that you could put this is a physically risen Savior, and maybe I should just write it like that. A physically risen Savior. What's the idea there? Well, of course, um, it, it's very important that we recognize that Jesus was raised physically and bodily from the dead. Okay, it wasn't just that he was raised spiritually. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what they um, you know, would have believed. The Bible teaches specifically that Jesus is the second Adam. We were raised to new life in Christ. We will have a glorified body. Our, our body will be changed and will be, will be made to be like his um, in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem. And so uh, we must have a truly risen Savior. Now, you, you, you might ask, well, where's the connection there? What does that have to do with the original creation? Well, if Adam in the beginning died physically, and Christ, as the second Adam, died physically and rose physically, then the, the chain is intact, right? There is a consistency to that link. It's not merely conceptual because Adam died physically. Christ had to uh, rise 
physically. And uh, just to quote Dr. Stephen Lloyd here on this point, quote, if being in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, is not rooted in the ontological foundation of physical descent from him, then how do I know who is included in the humanity that he represents? And who is the humanity that Jesus came to save? Jesus was born into the family line of Adam, Luke 3, 23 through 37. Hebrews 2, 14-17 explains that Jesus assumed the flesh he came to save. But if I am not a descendant of Adam, then the flesh, the humanity that Jesus assumed, would be different to mine. He would not be my kinsman redeemer, to use the imagery of the book of Ruth. Surely the gospel rests on the reality that in the incarnation, Jesus assumed our humanity, not just any humanity. Similarly, in Genesis, it is from Eve, the mother of all living, that the descendant will come to crush the serpent's head. Close quote. So uh, the point being is that many have taken the path of saying, well, we might not need a historical Adam. Okay. In order for, you know, to allow for evolution uh, to be the case, and we need to figure out a way to make that work with the Bible, uh, we could just punt on the history of Adam. Now, let me just caveat. Most old age creationists think Adam was a historical figure, although they will um, place him so far back into the creation a lot of times as to as to not even uh, be reasonable. Which, again, something we could discuss at a different time. Um, or, or, or you just get these really crazy notions of, um, like, if God did specially create um, Adam. And there's evidence, which there is, in the fossil record that we uh, uh, have interbred, and not just actually not just in the fossil record, actually in our DNA, plenty of evidence that we bred with uh, Neanderthals. If Neanderthals are not human, as most old age creationists will be forced to accept, um, then there's bestiality fundamentally in play with the you know the first humans that were on the earth. Really crazy stuff. Right? A young age creationist, though, can consistently accept that uh, Neanderthals, Denisovans are fully human, just as human as us, even though they might look a little different or be a little different. Um, it, it's they're still human, right? So, um, if if you get away from the historical Adam, then why did you need a physically risen Christ? Okay, so that's at stake here. A physically risen Savior is at stake when you're talking about the issue of creation, and that's one of the reasons why we believe it matters. And then fourth and finally, we have the many scientific evidences. This is the M of Adam, many scientific evidences. And what's interesting is, is, is there are quite a few people, I mean, there are different approaches. There's, there's, you know, to apologetics and, you know, to how you sort of structure your system of belief. Some people take a more evidential approach and then some people take a presuppositional approach. And I'm broadly categorizing again here. Um, but basically the evidential approach says, well, I believe in this view uh, specifically because there's lots of evidence to support it. The other view says, okay, I believe in this view because I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is true. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. That's it. That's where I stand. Now, let's go out and look for evidence and see which evidence confirms the Bible already, which evidence needs to be um, examined or explored more or reinterpreted to fit this worldview, etc. So there are two completely different ways of looking at the at the data there. Um, but look, I'm, I'm for a balanced approach with all of it here. I'm, I'm, our ministry is not necessarily one way or the other. Um, I do lean towards presuppositionalism for quite a few reasons. Um, but, uh, even that I'm, I'm hesitant to say, and I, I kind of qualify it with like, like the value of evidence is huge. Um, so we, we mustn't, um, 
just n- neglect that or, or put it on the on the on the back burner. Okay, so depending on how you structure belief, um, will sort of depend on which way you go here. But the, regardless of that, regardless of which way you do it, there are many uh, scientific pieces of evidence that do support the biblical account. And like I was saying, I know some people who are a young age creationists specifically because the scientific evidence uh, convinced them of this, and then others who are young age creationists merely because the scriptures convince them, and then they go out and look for scientific evidence to uh, support that and reinterpret it, et cetera. So what are some of those pieces of evidence that I think are compelling? Um, for me, here's just a few across some different domains. Uh, the, the model of the flood called catastrophic plate tectonics, and there are different models of the flood out there, hydroplate theory um, and others that are... Um, accepted in, in some circles as well. Personally, um, again, I'm not a geologist, so I only, you know, I'm only able to, to evaluate this data at, 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 you know, a particular level. For me, I think catastrophic plate tectonics is really interesting because it does seem to, um, you know, fit a lot of the data. In fact, um, in, in some cases, you could even say maybe more of the data that traditional plate tectonics theory um could explain this seems to be able to explain all of that data and a little bit more as well so the the flood from genesis 6 to 8 um if we're if we're looking within a young age creationist context there seems to be lots of evidence that would support that flood happening and the cpt flood model i think is really interesting that gives us uh confidence that uh, that that flood really happened the second is um, biology and uh, barominology. So barominology is kind of a word that it was made up. It's, it's from the Hebrew words uh, bara and min, and that basically stands for created kind. And so this is the study of created kinds. And so um, rather than you know traditional evolution in the sort of secular mainstream thinking with species and cladistics and just all those things we could throw out um, – which primarily focuses on the similarities between organisms. Um, Barominology focuses on the dissimilarity between different sorts of organisms and um, also similarity, right? So it, it treats them equally, if you will, and says, okay, well, based on lots of different criteria, um, we're going to go through and we're going to evaluate what species belongs where, you know, could, you know, these species over here, did they interbreed? And did they interbreed in the past? Could they have in the past? And based on just all sorts of data points, you're going to say, okay, well, we can cluster these animals over here. We can cluster these humans over here. We can, you know, and we can see sort of who belongs to what in the creationary orchard of life. So evolutionists talk about the tree of life where lots of different branches and it all connects to a universal last common ancestor. Creationists will talk about the orchard of life where you've just essentially got lots of different trees. And we use biblical data and morphological data, statistical data, and just all kinds of stuff to uh, make those determinations and figure out where it all fits and where those lines are. And I think the research in those areas is proving to be pretty fruitful across the board. Uh, there's lots of disagreement within creationism on that um, in the in the sense of what data should be input even into the conversation and what methods should be used to actually do that. Again, I'm way above my pay grade in terms of the actual um, working out of those things. But the reality is that I think there's good scientific evidence from there to show that we don't have to rely on the evolutionary assumption that there is a universal last common ancestor with this tree of life. Uh, there seems to be lots of evidence that there is just as much discontinuity in between organisms as there is continuity. Uh, you've got polonium halos and the unreliability of radiometric dating. This is another one that I find very interesting. To keep this one short and sweet, basically, 
in in the same rocks that you have evidence of billions of years, you also have evidence of youth. Okay, so there is are markers of radioactive decay that that shows a lot of radioactive decay has happened, but it seems to have happened in a short period of time, and that would lend itself to something like the flood and the flood model that we discussed before, where you've got just just tons of heat, tons of radioactive uh, activity happening in one. Uh, compressed period of time, which the Bible uh, takes down to about a year. Um, lots of questions raised with that. Okay, there's there's probably more questions than answers in that particular point, but still, I think it's a, a fascinating study. And then finally, I would say the youthful universe. So most of the teaching around the age of the universe is baked with assumptions, assumptions of uniformitarianism, uh, chiefly, and it's it's really a problem. Um, because if you if you just lay some of those assumptions to the side, you can do a lot more fruitful and productive uh, research that seems to match up. Hugh Ross, an astronomer um, who is in very much in the old age creationist camp, has made the absurd claim. Um, in my opinion, it's quite absurd that um, he would be a flat earther before he would be a young age creationist. Okay, look, the thing is, it's two completely different ways of looking at evidence and data. Okay, a, a flat earther like. We have telescopes, we have, you know, we could go out, we could do science right now, we could look, we could see that the earth is round, okay? Whereas when you're doing historical science, basically investigation into the history of the, uh, of, of the world and the universe and into the past, you're going to have to make some assumptions to rely on there. And the biggest one being the assumption of uniformitarianism, and I think the Bible teaches that that assumption is just false. Um, and we'll talk about that in the future on this podcast for sure. I've also talked about it on the Bible Nerd podcast that you can check out as well. Um, you also have some things like galaxy formation. Galaxy formation is really, really hard to deal with in the conventional view. Um, and also, we have other astro elements like blue stars, spiral galaxies, even the existence of comets. These are all things that as you begin looking into the data and into the research that, that young age creationists have done, it's like, it, it's really hard to explain these things on an evolutionary uh, conventional chronology view, whereas on young age creationism, they make a lot of sense. So uh, there are lots of scientific evidences that are uh, fruitful and able to be used to support the idea of young age creationism if you're willing to look in the right places um, to find them and you're willing to do the hard work and the hard research. So there it is. So Adam, the accuracy of the biblical account, death before the fall, a truly or physically risen savior, and then many scientific evidences. If, if anyone ever asks you again, why do you care about the age of the earth? Why do you talk about creation? Why does it matter? Those are the reasons. I mean, for me, uh, if you have your own reasons, I would love for you to share them. Email me, steve at stevesharam.com. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment below the video. I would love to know what your thoughts are. If you have some other reasons or some other you know, what, different ways that you would articulate it, I would love to have your thoughts there. But this is just how, how I remember it and how it makes the most sense for me. God bless you guys. This is it for this episode. I thank you so much for listening. If there's ever anything I could do for you, again, just reach out to me, steve at stevesharam.com. Happy to have a conversation. Blessed to be able to do this, and we'll catch you on the next one.